You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Scott Patterson, who is a journalist with the Wall Street Journal and also the author of a couple books in the area of finance. Most recently, this book called Chaos Kings, How Wall Street Creators Make Billions in the New Age of Crisis. Also, a couple other books from about a decade ago, I guess it was, including this one called Dark Pools, High-Speed Traders, AI Bandits, and the Threat to the Global Financial System. And then before that, you had this one called The Quants, How a New Breed of Math Whizzes Conquered Wall Street and Nearly Destroyed It. Welcome, Scott. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. Look, all these books, I think they have some commonalities. Obviously, they're all in the world of finance and trading, but I think they also tell a story of some kind of outsider who comes in and disrupts the system and oftentimes does things that I'm going to say from an academic perspective, the academics sometimes find a little puzzling. Sometimes the academics are sort of at the heart of things. In the most recent book, Chaos Kings, you highlight Nassim Taleb, right? And Spitznagel and Sornet and a couple other folks who are, I guess, challenging modern portfolio theory and efficient markets in separate ways. And of course, on the cover, you have the black swan, right? And I remember during the corona crisis, I was asked by a number of portfolio managers to give talks on black swans. And everyone loves this term now. <laughs> it's kind of used to describe anything that seems kind of out of the ordinary, but I think it's being used so often to, that the unpredictable is now predictable. So I guess the first question is, what drew you to these characters who I think, even though they began as outsiders, I think they're still kind of outsiders. I don't think that they are considered mainstream, certainly not by financial academics. No, uh, I think that maybe it depends on who you talk to, I guess, but within the world of Wall Street or academia, which I'm not as close to, yeah, I think Nassim is still seen as an outsider. Many of his ideas have been adopted to an extent, but he's iconoclastic. He's a bomb thrower. People maybe just don't like his personality and that reflects on people's willingness to accept the ideas. There's also this tendency to say he's never really said anything new. It's all this stuff has been out there in various forms. I touch on that in the book. It's true to an extent, but what I found in my research through all these books and back, you know, when I wrote the quants, I knew Nassim and talked to him and he was influential in my take on Wall Street back then. You know, he's talking about these fat-tailed events that will sort of live outside the bell curve, normal expectations of what should happen and why academics or traders or both, because they kind of went together in the 80s and 90s, and that's the quants, but the, that phenomenon, they still resist incorporating the fat tails into their daily lives or into their models, and that affects how they trade. So Nassim is just pounding the table saying, I've seen the models, he taught an NYU course on it, and you guys are not accepting reality, that there are major events that happen that will scramble 
your strategies and you'll lose everything if you continue to operate the way you are. And we've seen that happen uh, time and time again. Yeah. I mean, some people might portray this as kind of the quants versus the anti-quants, but I think that would be a fake history, right? I mean, these guys are deeply quantitative. I think it's really one type of quantitative approach versus another type of quantitative approach where the latter emphasizes insights taken from the field of complexity, right? Yeah. A big influence on Nassim uh, was Benoit Mandelbrot, uh, one of the fathers of chaos theory. And he had been researching these extreme moves in financial markets for decades and decades. Uh, I think he first started looking at, at cotton markets uh, over many years. And for Mandelbrot, this is another scene I recount in Chaos Kings is when Nassim first met Mandelbrot uh, after he gave his, Mandelbrot gave a speech in New York. Nassim said, why are you doing this? You're this great thinker. Why do you care about financial markets? And, and Mandelbrot said data, you know, reams and reams of data. So for him, it wasn't really exercise in trying to figure out trading strategies. It was looking at these weird patterns that were chaotic. My book is Chaos Kings. You can't fit these things into normal yeah. markets. I think Mandelbrot used, liked to use the word wild. These are wild markets. And that was a big influence on Nassim. And the Black Swan is actually dedicated to Mandelbrot. So yes, very quantitative oriented. Mandelbrot was a mathematician and a extremely smart mathematician. So was Nassim. But they came at things from a different perspective than most people in academia that were really just following the mainstream theories of efficient markets and modern portfolio theory. Well, you know, in academia, we have some tension between kind of the theorists and the empiricists. And it seems like there's a little bit of that in your story, right? Where there are people that have models and, and they, they seem to be wedded to their models and others that are all about just pattern recognition and just looking to see what's happening, right, in the markets. And I think that's a theme that shows up in all of the books to some degree, right? Yeah, that's a good distinction. I don't know if I'd thought of it that way, but it's, it makes sense. You would think that a theorist who goes to Wall Street would quickly learn their lesson. And I think there is, there's a famous anecdote about Fisher Black, who you probably remember this better than me, but it, it's something about how markets appear much more efficient from the Charles River than they do on the Hudson River. <laughs> and he famously he, he taught in, at MIT, and he was a very rigid theoretician about efficient markets. But then in the 80s, he joined Goldman Sachs and started watching how traders operated and became much more of an empiricist, I think. So that's one good example of how those barriers can break down. But I also, Nassim one time showed me an email that he had gotten from a, a very well-known, respected academic in finance who conceded to Nassim in that, yes, we know that these fat tails exist. But our models don't work if we incorporate them into the models. And that's the problem. If you recognize that there is potentials for three, four, five sigma events, then to put a fat tail in it, into the model. And, I, and that's fine. But in as long as the people running trading desks and, and executives understand that if you have a value at risk model, it's not really capturing the real risk that you're, you're going to be facing because it, it carves out 
a 5% generally, other use 5% of the volatility of the extreme volatility over a year. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the story here, which is sort of beneath the surface also is the incentives that asset managers face, which has to do with your day-to-day returns. So, you know, in the earlier books in dark pools, you talk about these traders that are, they're realizing their profits more or less by 4 p.m. every day, right? And they're in and out of the markets super quickly. But the insights that Taleb and his colleagues come to is that, and I think this is an analogy that we use all the time, right? You can be picking up your nickels in front of the steamroller, right? But the steamroller is going to get you at some point. But if you know, if you have to report your PL on a daily basis, if you're giving away nickels on a daily basis, which that's basically the strategy that these funds are employing, that's one where you're going to find it difficult to raise money, one would think, because people would say, hey, what have you done for me lately? No, oh, absolutely. And that's why they had a lot of trouble launching the Universal Hedge Fund. That was the successor to Empirica, which Nassim launched with Mark Spisnagel in 1999. They shut that down five years later, and then Mark relaunches Universa in 2007. And, you know, I tell a story about how they traveled the country meeting after meeting, and no one wanted to give any money to this hedge fund. Even in 2007, when it was looking pretty shaky in the markets, people still didn't understand the, the, you know, the nature of the strategy and the benefit that they could get from it, because as you say, it's outside the normal parameter of how traditional Wall Street strategies work, which are more geared towards short-term gains, either weekly, monthly, or annually. The annual bonus is every trader on Wall Street knows what that's all about. That's the whole ball game. apparently, is, is the year-end bonus more than your salary. So if you show up to your boss with a, you're in the red for the year, no bonus. <laughs> so... That's why that's, it's one of the reasons why the strategy is, is, is actually successful because they have very few competitors. There are some other funds out there that, that do this, but as far as I'm aware, they're the only one that does it. They only do that strategy, the tail hedge strategy. And by doing that, they're very good at it, but it's just not something that most people who go to Wall Street want to do. Well, I mean, it's ultimately a, a, a triumphal story, right? Because I mean, they do wind up successful and appreciated by the end of the book. But I think it's really more somewhat a story of better marketing, right? Because people began to see this strategy in a different way, right? Began to see it more like an insurance product. But we had portfolio insurance. Some of my colleagues here at Berkeley right, came up with this product back yeah. in the 80s. And I think that's in the quants as I, I tell that story. Yeah. And so, of course, it led to the 1987 crash, and then it sort of went out of favor. So, I mean, would this strategy have succeeded in the marketplace if it weren't for Taleb's role as the kind of marketer or like the pitch man for this whole idea? It's a good question. I think so, because of the success of the strategy. As I said, they didn't get any, you know, got very few takers in 2007. Some started to sign up in 2008, and then they made a billion at the end of 2008, which is something I wrote about in the Wall Street Journal. That got a lot of attention, and people started seeing that this could be value. It ebbs and flows, so they had a big rush of investors after 2008, and then 
depending on how much worry there was in the market, the investors would go in and out. So really up to 2020, they didn't have a deep portfolio of investors. They were another interesting story about how traditional finance finds it difficult to stomach the strategy. I tell the story about how CalPERS decided to invest in Universa in tail hedge strategies in general and started around 2016 and they started talking to Universa. They decided to allocate significant assets to it. They had gotten up to around $5 billion by 2019, early 2020. And we're even thinking of getting bigger, much bigger, maybe $20, 25000000000 billion. But a, a, a new manager came on board at CalPERS and in 2019 made the decision to exit the strategy. So in early 2020, Universa was forced essentially to liquidate the entire CalPERS tail hedge. <laughs> basically weeks before one of the greatest crashes that we've ever seen. And that's just because this new manager, he looked at the expense and just saw it as many do as a, a line item. Why am I paying 80 million a year or hundred million a year, whatever it cost for nothing? I'm getting nothing out of this. And others who supported it said, actually one day you will be very happy that you had, uh, we're paying for this and it'll pay off much more than what you put in. And, the, and there are other reasons for that, why CalPERS wanted to do that, because they were struggling to, to get returns that can you know, meet the pensioners' demands over the years. They had a shortfall, an expected shortfall, and they wanted to have a strategy that allowed them to get more upside from the stock market. Because when the traditional pension fund strategy is, you know, the vanilla strategy is 60-40, 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds. The universe pitches, you're giving up a lot of upside from stocks. If you do that, why don't you get a real hedge, only allocate around 3% to that and put the rest in stocks or something else that's got more upside. And if you do that, then your returns over the years will be better. At least historically, that's proven to be true. So CalPERS was interested in, try in trying to do that. But then, unfortunately, they bailed on the strategy just when it would have paid off. Yeah, no, I love that story. I mean, I'm here in California. I'm familiar with a lot of these folks. <laughs> I know a lot of these people. The idea is really powerful, right? And the idea is that a 97% exposure to equities with a 3% essentially downside protection can outperform a 60-40 portfolio. And in part because what we're seeing in many cases is that Stocks and bonds are correlated, particularly in downturns. And so we don't get the protection that we thought we were getting, right? Yeah. And with a fast moving crash, you can really, as they say, correlations go to one. You can really get stuck. And that's what happened to pension, a lot of pension funds in 2008 was to, in order to get liquidity, they had to sell their stock portfolio. And a lot of them sold their stocks. CalPERS, I think, is famously to this at the bottom. Whereas a strategy like the universal strategy is you'd be able to hold on to your stocks, maybe even buy at the bottom because you're getting this big infusion of cash just when you need it. Yeah. And I think the key insight is that if you were to go back and delete like the five worst days in the stock market like over the last 30, 40 years, you would dramatically increase your overall return. 
But similarly, right, if you were to delete the best five days, you would dramatically uh, decrease your returns. So the idea would be to get rid of the downside risk without getting rid of the upside potential. But it seems like some of these strategies, if we believe that the probability at the end of the distribution is actually higher than, say, a normal distribution, then we should be able to make money regardless of whether, I mean, you know, if if people are underestimating the likelihood of both high and low extremes, then we should just be able to, you know, buy volatility, right? I think that it's tricky. (laughs) It's also getting outside of my area of expertise. I mean, I, I talk to Universal a lot. What they would say is this is not a strategy that's as easy as it looks, maybe. And this is why a lot of competitors get in and they put on the strategy for a couple of years, but end up shutting down. I don't have the universe's secret sauce. And I've talked to other managers who have analyzed this risk, like people at AQR who are notoriously bearish on tail hedging strategies. And they look at it and they just say, this is too, it's too expensive, basically, to buy what they call lottery tickets. You're going to lose money over time. Now, if you dig a little bit into the details, what they are looking at is not remotely close to a universal strategy because they're looking at options that will pay off in, I think, like a 5% move or a 10% move, which are more, a lot more expensive. They're not deep out of the money options. So universe is going yeah. for the deep out of the money options. Universe is buying stuff that's typically viewed as junk. It's the ultimate value play because these things are almost always going to expire worthless. Because it's a bet on a 20% decline in the S&P 500 within a month, which never happens. Now, tr- the trick is that you don't really need to get a 20% decline for those options values to surge dramatically. You know, if the VIX suddenly shoots up 20 or 30%, all you need is the fear of super big crash to cause them to be valuable. And then Universal can cash in that trade. But there's things that they do that, you know, I think partly because they're one of the only counterparties in the market for these kind of options, they're able to use that market power to get better prices. They're in a way kind of like a market maker. Other hedge funds or bank desks, they see that as easy money. (laughs) You just sell these things. Selling volatility can be very easy money. You just sell it. You get in a couple million dollars or whatever it is, steady money every month. You think there's really no risk there and, uh, you know, you're happy. And Universe is like, is happy to take that trade and just kind of laughing because they know that it's, at the end of the day, this is not going to work out well for their counterparties. Well, I mean, I think you can see why, say, CalPERS is going to find it more difficult to adopt this strategy than, say, a non-public pension fund. Because all of their performances under public scrutiny, right? And all of the, the conversations that they have with the fund managers are subject to public scrutiny. And so you could just imagine the, the beneficiaries looking at this line item year in, year out and saying, hey, what, what are we doing here? And the payoff is presumably going to happen after the fund managers have all moved on to other jobs. Yeah, I think that's part of the, the short term. The short termism is a drawback for those managers. I mean, they should be thinking about what's the best for their fiduciaries, for their pensioners, but that, you know, we know that's not the world we live in. And 
Yeah, I mean, CalPERS, it's kind of surprising that they were the ones who went big on this because they are so big. You would have to have a gigantic tail hedge to really move the needle. And that was one of the criticisms of the new manager was it's just you can't scale it to really move the needle for us. Now, I don't know. I mean, 25 billion, that probably would have moved the needle in a big crash. But I think it probably would make more sense for a smaller pension fund where this scaling was more realistic. It's one of the big questions about this strategy in general. Is it scalable to the broader market? Because Spitznagel will say that my strategy is the best one. It works better. Look, let's compare it to everything else. And yet nobody takes them up on it because it's, for one, it's so hard to implement. And there's also just questions of how big can you get buying exotic 20% out of the money options. Yeah, presumably you'd arbitrage away mispricing of risk at some point. <laughs> just enough people do Theoretically, it. yeah, you would. And, and it's one of the sort of, one of the mysteries is if it is so effective, how come it hasn't been arbitraged? And, and I think they would say, well, there's all of these structural impediments and behavioral impediments to people adopting the strategy. And that's their alpha, I guess you would say, is they're able to, to do it. Well, I mean, so I teach a course on behavioral finance, and, and I think there's two things that work here. I mean, one is this kind of systemic underestimation of tail risk, but the other, it could be simply recency bias, right? In the sense that, you know, I, I think that Spitznagel and Taleb would not say that they're making a directional bet, but in some sense, it could be seen as a directional bet because this strategy has performed well in a period where we've had the Fed doing everything they can to kind of dampen down risk, right? And so that's really a unique environment, right? So we talk a lot about the value at risk model and how the value at risk model in calm times systemically underestimates risk. And that's been sort of what's happening over the last couple of decades. But if it's recency bias, then we would expect that people would overestimate risk in the wake of these big events, right? So after the global financial crisis, after say maybe a flash crash, after the coronavirus pandemic, then it, it might make sense to, to, to do the opposite. So do they think of this as being sort of a strategy which takes advantage of the unique policy situation that we've been going through the last couple of decades? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're the biggest Fed skeptics I've ever met or among them outside of the gold people that I, I used to write about. Yeah. I mean, their argument is that they're just building dry tinder for massive blowups. And 2008 was an example of that. The Fed came in and they would say, well, 2008 was the result of Alan, years and years ago, Alan Greenspan with the Greenspan put building up risk that manifested itself in the financial system, the housing market. But then they came in with this zero interest rate policy and then buying bonds, everything they could do to keep volatility low, to dampen volatility low and increase risk appetite. So they were theoretically forcing people into risky assets. That's a strategy for doom and their perspective is that you're not really weeding out the root of the problem. You're just letting it grow like a cancer. And it's just, you're giving the patients morphine but the cancer is still there. 
and it's eventually the patient's going to die. I don't personally agree with their argument there, but it is, I mean, you know, in the fullness of time, we'll all find out, or is this just leading to some Armageddon-like explosion of debt, which they foresee? But what's fascinating is that a lot of the protagonists in your books, they have these policy prescriptions, which if they were implemented, would more or less put them out of business, right? So you saw the same thing with Levine, right? In Dark Pools, he was taking advantage of these structural problems with the NASDAQ, but he kept advocating that these structural problems, you know, be eliminated, right? And if they were eliminated, then what's his role, right? Then he no longer can exploit these anomalies and loopholes. Yeah. And Josh Levine is, I think he would be perfectly happy to see his ability to take advantage of the system go away because he's a unique person who doesn't really care that the guys at Daytech and the traders who are using his software, they would be very upset if, if the policymakers adopted his proposals, which are, I think, still, who knows if they would really work. I mean, he's talking, what he wanted to do was do sub-penny trading, and that that would eliminate a lot of the ability of traders, like the, the day traders at Daytech and elsewhere, to take advantage of these big spreads. The spreads would just collapse. But th this was before the age of the high-frequency trader, um, which uh, HFT came out of Island, which he created. Who really knows, you know, sub-penny trading could have just resulted in just a lot more trading, where people are arbitraging micro-pennies at high speeds. Now, one of the other stories within the story of Chaos Kings is this kind of back and forth between DDA Sornet and, and Nassim Taleb over the predictability of crashes. And in this sense, I mean, Taleb is on the side of the efficient market folks, right? Saying that you can't really make any money by predicting what's going to happen. Whereas Sornet has this belief that there are these signals or indicators that can tell you, hey, you're in a bubble. And so in that sense, Taleb, it's almost like he's siding with Greenspan, who famously said that you don't know whether you're in a bubble until after it's after over. Burst. Yeah, it is one of the ironies is that in the, the big debate about portfolio theory, they do fall on that efficient market side of things to an extent. I mean, their strategy is taking advantage of some structural issues and the way the Wall Street generally underprices risk. But Talib's saying you can't time things, right? You just have to have this. You can't time it. Yeah, if you have this insurance policy, it will sooner or later pay off, but you can't tell when. Yeah. So they are making a directional bet, but they can't time it, which I think is probably true, you know, and Sornet's insights are really interesting that he, he's saying, yes, the market generally is very efficient on day-to-day -day basis, but there's times when it sort of becomes dislocated from fundamentals and it just gets really out of whack. And there are signals that you can detect that are telling you when this is happening and when it's really going like what, you know, you would say super critical or super exponential, which is just the moment before the blow up. And then you can trade on it, buy a bunch of put options. And he's done experiments over the time, you know, I've looked at some of them, not all of them, but what they seem to show is that his system does have the ability to recognize when assets 
enter a bubble territory, but timing the bursting of the bubble seems very hard. And, and he made some predictions about a decade ago with you know various commodities and markets. And what was happening was his predictions did show that these things were in, in bubbles and, and maybe, and they went down a little bit, but then we go up a lot more, <laughs> uh, like 30 or 40% or more uh, after he said, this is in a, a bubble is about to pop. So that, that's the thing about bubbles is really, it's, it seems extremely difficult to time the bursting of the bubble. And, and that's why trading around it in the debate that Nassim and Didier have, which I recount this meeting that they had in New York City, where Nassim is trying to explain what you have here is very interesting. And maybe I'd buy some put options if you showed me this, but this is not a way to manage risk. And that's a fundamentally different way of looking at it. When Didier is more like a gambler, he's trying to say, this is going to let me gamble better because I've got the most sophisticated system in the world and it's based on physics and, you know, I can detect when bombs are going to blow up with this stuff. But Nassim is saying, well, fine, if you want to do that with your own money, but if you're managing client risk, this is a very bad thing to try to use. To, to do that because you're timing, you're trying to time the market, it's going to end badly. But at the end of the day, I mean, Spitznagel does have to make some timing decisions, right? So in the immediate, as soon as there's a crisis, he has to decide, do I liquidate my positions on day one, day two, day three, right? And so in the coronavirus crisis, right, if you, you know, liquidated your position <laughs> a couple of days in, you'd do great. But if you held on for another week or two, then you're going to give up all those gains. That's a really good point. And what they tell me is they have signals based on historical data that shows them when they need to cash in. But uh, you're right. There does have to be some kind of human element there. It's not completely robotic. I tell the story of 9-11 with Empirica, um, where they, they sort of learned this lesson that they held on to their positions after 9-11 because their clients and I remember I lived in New York at the time. Everybody thought this is just the start. There could be more attacks and who, who knows what's going to happen. So they held on. There were no more attacks and the market rallied and their positions, which should have paid off handsomely, did not. So what they learned was forget what you think is going to happen in the world when you, it looks like you have a very good return on your investments. Take advantage of it. But they, I mean, they never opened up the box to me and said, here's the signal and exactly what tells us when to liquidate. They just, they say they have models that give them the, the signal. Now, another theme in your story in Cast Kings is about how Talib lost his appetite for trading, really, and decided to lean into his status as a flaneur, right? But I mean, he took this, this insights around financial markets and extended them into other domains. And so he got involved in all sorts of debates around infectious diseases and genetically modified organisms and so forth, right? Yeah. I mean, you'll see it in his books. He, he ranges over many different subjects. Each book, I think, along the way, extends more and more outside of the, the realm of finance. But I, I think it's interesting how you really can, at the end of the day, see how the trading strategy and put options lay behind like so many of different things that are in those books. It's the core insight, which is very extreme things can happen 
way beyond what you ever expect, which happened to him in 1987 on Black Monday. He made a lot of money on that trade. And it also made him realize that all these guys around me ain't so smart. <laughs> they don't have it figured out. So that's Black Swan. Then you look at Anti-Fragile, which is something that's supposed to benefit from volatility, get stronger from volatility. But what gets stronger from volatility than a 20% out-of-the-money put option? So the strategies lay behind many different things. Uh, but yes, he has successfully applied it to a lot of different other realms. And it's really his insight into pandemics, which he, he's been talking about for many years. That's one of the things that sort of inspired me to do this book was in the first quarter of 2020, Universa posted famously a 4,000 plus percent return on their position. So it wasn't 4,000 percent on their assets under management. There's a lot of confusion about that. But so Universa did that. And then in, at the same time in January of 2020, uh, Nassim and a few other colleagues wrote a paper uh, warning about the risk of COVID-19 because it had these properties that appeared to be extremely risky that, you know, how fast it could spread. Travel is up a lot more than it used to be. So this thing might move across borders more quickly than they real we realize they issued this warning that we need to take extreme measures to protect against it. Now, I remember in January, 2020, I was not thinking that COVID would become a global pandemic. I was thinking, wow, China's going to have a real problem here and maybe this could mess up some trade issues and that could affect the market. But I had no idea and nor did many, even experts, WHO was not sounding the alarm at the time. So I kind of thought, wow, it's interesting that Nassim's, you know, worldview, which is based on black swans and exponential risk, allowed him to see this, gave him the tools to see what was happening and warn about it in real time. They actually sent their memo to the White House. I'm sure it ended up in a trash can or a toilet or something at some point. But people, if they'd listened, maybe, and they weren't the only ones, there were some others warning about it as well, but not many. So that's kind of what I, that, you know, it sort of inspired the germ of the idea of the book was, it, it would be interesting to tell the story of these guys. And I've known Nassim and Mark since mid 2000s. So I just emailed them and said, Hey, what do you think about doing a book? And Nassim said, no way. <laughs> I mean, he was a reluctant collaborator for a while, but he, he finally came on. Well, I mean, when I started preparing these talks for these pension funds in 2020, after the pandemic, asking about black swans, of course, I went back and I found all sorts of folks who were prophesying, right? So a bit of hindsight bias. But I think the main point that Tal was making about connectedness is that we all thought, and certainly in certain circles, there was a belief that if you took all the mountain climbers and tied them together with a rope, then every mountain climber would be safer because if they fell in a crevasse, then they'd be connected to the rest. And that was the idea behind connecting all the markets and creating all of these different types of instruments that allowed you to repackage risk and, and so forth. But what we discovered is that by tying all the mountain climbers together, it meant that if one of them fell down the crevasse, you have to drag a whole bunch of other people with them. And I think in your earlier books, that's part of the story, right? About how by creating all of this liquidity, and by connecting all of these markets and allowing price movements to diffuse more quickly, 
it, it actually leads to potentially more instability, right? And ultimately, liquidity can collapse more quickly. Yeah, I do think that the risk of uh, high-speed contagion across markets is something we should be concerned about. I, I wrote about that in Dark Wolves, and we haven't seen the disaster scenario that I, I scoped out there. The flash crash was example of that. And I was on the desk at the Wall Street Journal that day and remember it clearly. And I called up some high-speed traders I knew and said, hey, what's going on here? And they said, oh, we turned off our computers. It's too crazy for us. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, with high-speed trading, I was sort of on the front lines of reporting it. It really wasn't a well-known phenomenon. And it, I just found it very alarming <laughs> that the financial markets had evolved into this race to trade microseconds faster than the next guy. And at the time in 2010 or so, this is largely a U.S. phenomenon. Now, it, it was moving to Europe a little bit, but mostly it evolved in the U.S., out of Chicago and New York. And it was moving from asset class to asset class as the stock market by 2010 or 2011 was dead for them. They'd arbitraged out all the little inefficiencies. So they were moving to the next thing and the next thing. And then they started building cables across the Atlantic to Europe and was moving into Asia. So I was like, oh my God, like this is some gigantic network that's going to be trading globally at high speeds across asset classes. And the way these models work is, you know, they're trading these correlations between all these different asset classes. And I thought, well, something could get wacky in, say, the dollar or gold or oil or something. And, then, and that causes a dislocation uh, in the correlations and you have contagion that ripples through the strategies. And if this happened at a major firm, that ripples to the other <laughs> strategies that others are running. And my first book was the quants and, and that actually did happen to quantitative hedge funds in August, 2007. So I was kind of, you know, thinking like really crazy things happen with these computer strategies. I mean, who knows an AI could run amok, but we, I don't think we really have seen that. I mean, in, in 2020, there was some extremely insane things going on in the markets. And I think probably negative oil prices, bonds, you couldn't buy a treasury bond or sell a treasury bond for a while at one point, not normal. But I think a lot of that was not just, it, it was an exogenous event. It, it was COVID was causing the global economy to seize up. And that just, that moved into financial markets. Central bankers came in and threw a bunch of money at it and cleaned out the pipes. But yeah, this idea of a sort of a high-speed computer-driven contagion, this has always been something I've been concerned about, but I don't think we've really seen that yet. Well, now, towards the end of the book, you talk about some of the catastrophic risks related to things like climate change, right? And maybe asteroids and so forth. Now, I mean, some of those things like an asteroid strike. I mean, I don't know exactly how you could trade on that because presumably if the world goes extinct, then there's no way to cash in your chips. But for things like global warming, I mean, you talk about Bob Litterman 
And Bob Litterman appears earlier in the story as sort of a member of the modern portfolio tribe, right? But then towards the end of the book, he shows up as someone who is an advocate of investment strategies that exploit our maybe misunderstanding of risks like climate change. Yeah. His concern about climate change is a function of his expertise as a risk manager at Goldman Sachs. And when he started looking at it after he left Goldman around 2010 or so, he got freaked out apparently and was realizing that the models that were being used to assess risk from climate change were just wildly off and not reflecting the real risks that we're facing. He's become an activist, basically. I and mean, if you, you read a presentation that Bob Letterman gave to, you know, say, Congress in the past few years, you might think you're reading a diatribe by Gleta Thunberg. <laughs> it's literally like, you know, we're in real deep shit here and we got to do something right now because the longer we wait, the more the risk manifests and the more we'll have to do to head it off. He's a traditional economist, so he's like any economist who looks at climate change and managing the risks to say, let's just throw a carbon tax on it. And that's going to help it a lot. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not politically realistic. That's the problem with that. Maybe one of these days. But anyway, I mean, it, to me, the more interesting thing is you've got this guy. He's very, you know, he's a Republican, very conservative individual, comes out of Goldman Sachs. And yet here he is saying we have an existential risk we're facing. And, and he's not, I mean, JP Morgan has said the same thing. I mean, climate change is what I write about at the journal. That's my beat. So I wanted the book to be not just about buying out of the money options to protect your portfolio. I wanted it to be broader in terms of thinking about the risks that we face. And that's the subtitle of the book, The New Age of Crisis, which I try to make an argument that we're entering a world of crises are manifesting and overlapping more and magnifying the nature of the crisis. Some people call us the poly crisis and climate, I think, is the big dog in that crisis world. But again, it's hard to design an investment strategy around that, right? Because what you really would be betting on is not the trends in climate as much as trends in people's response to climate, right? So if you think that people underestimate the probability of a bad outcome, you, you're going to bet one way if you think they're going to continue to underestimate. You're going to bet a very different way if you think that they will sort of wake up to it, right? And realize and more accurately estimate the probability of a climate crisis, right? So if he's investing in clean energy, for instance, then he's talking his book, right? But if he invests in some kind of disaster protection, then he's not talking the book. So how do you actually design an investment strategy around what you know to be the trend? Well, I think that Bob is an optimist and he's also a believer, a very firm believer in the fishing markets. He worked alongside Fisher Black, you know, in the early days, his early days at Goldman. So he thinks that people are going to come to their senses and the reality, the underlying fundamentals are going to be priced into the assets. Maybe he's unsure exactly about the timing of that. So that's his bet on an efficient market. This risk is real. It's going to get priced in eventually. So he shorts oil, gas, fossil fuel 
assets and goes long things that can benefit from climate change. I forget exactly what that would be. I mean, solar stocks, I guess. But a strategy, it's a tricky one because clean energy was one of the best performing sectors in 2021, did phenomenally well. But then 2022, it was a little, I, I guess there was, it got a little bubbly. I think it's one of those things where it's more of a stock pickers, where I'd hate to use that phrase, but you really want to be an expert. And if you are, I think that you probably can do pretty well because I think that ultimately Bob's right. The market is going to catch up. There's a lot of financial power coming from the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act. Other things, just the shift in the job towards net zero policies from major corporations. That's just like a wave that's going to force lots and lots of money into this stuff. But picking the right one, you know, like, would I want to be the tell you what battery, you know, EV battery company to, you know, start up to invest in? No, <laughs> because that's really, really hard. Picking winners and losers in this whole rush of startups to jump into this market is really hard. I mean, who, who would have seen Tesla being worth a trillion in 2015? So that's a strategy is coming at it from a portfolio theory perspective with climate. It's got, yeah, that's, I, I really hadn't thought about it, but yeah, it's, it's pretty difficult. Well, Scott, thanks so much for joining me. These books are all great. I was rereading Dark Pools and Quants just recently. And even though they're a decade old or so, they've aged quite well because all three of these books, although they're about finance and risk and liquidity and other sorts of things, they're really about people. And you're telling stories about these players who kind of changed the financial landscape. So keep up the good work. Look forward to the next book. Yeah, we appreciate that. book is called Chaos Kings, Dark Pools and the Quants. Talk again soon. Thanks a lot, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>